Welcome to the second episode of Good Digital, a podcast about people, organisations and communities using digital for positive social change. Each week we will chat with someone for a deep dive into a particular aspect of digital social change, as well as highlighting news and events that may help you better use digital in your everyday campaigning, fundraising and organising activities. Before we start the podcast, I just wanted to add a personal thank you to everyone who got in touch after the first episode with fantastic feedback, ideas and encouragement. And an extra special thank you and virtual hugs to everyone who shared and promoted Good Digital via social. I really appreciate it. Now back to the show. Today our guest is Tom Dawkins. Tom set up Start Some Good, a crowdfunding platform exclusively for social change products with Alex Burdick in 2011. Tom and Alex saw the potential of crowdfunding to raise money for social good projects, but felt that the existing crowdfunding platforms were not well designed for -for not-for-profit projects, which inspired them to begin StartSomeGood.com. Since then, Tom, Alex and the team at StartSomeGood have helped hundreds of charities, social enterprises and community projects in 35 countries collectively raise over 6 million US dollars via crowdfunding. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, and I think before we actually start getting into the the nuts and bolts of things, can you explain to everyone exactly what crowdfunding is for our, for our listeners? You know, that's a that's a, a more interesting question than it sounds in many ways. There's this very kind of broad definition that you often read, which goes something like, "It's the aggregation of multiple small contributions." Um, which together are able to fund a project or initiative that no one individual could fund alone. Um, And that's a pretty good definition for some of those kind of core mechanics in crowdfunding. But of course, that doesn't really separate out what's, what's new from what's old, because that general principle of aggregating together lots of small contributions is, of course, what charities have been doing forever. And in many ways, it's as old as tithing. Um, So what's new, I think, is the creation of platforms that that require a greater specificity around crowdfunding. So where once organizations, I I think, used to drive very heavily on on recurring funding, and of course that still is very important to a lot of organizations, crowdfunding is more about the specific project that needs a specific amount of money so it can happen within a specific time frame, and asking people to help fund that particular piece of work. So it appeals to the same sorts of people that might prefer to, you know, make a direct loan to an individual through Kiva rather than write a check to Oxfam. Um, and in other words, it appeals to, I think, the small, the kind of more micro philanthropists. So when we say micro, we're talking into the hundreds and even thousands, but generally people who can't just, you know, flourish their checkbook and make a project happen. They have to, and they want to, they don't want to feel like their funds are just kind of disappearing into these bigger budgets. They really want to get a sense of where their money lands, where their money hits the ground and exactly what sort of social impact is made possible by their contribution. And I think that's really important to like look back and say what you said about it being as old as being tithing. Um, I hadn't thought about it in that in that way before, but the, when you said it, it's like, oh yeah, that just makes so much sense. So that's a really interesting yeah, way kind of to one put of those it. Classic so, new yeah, words to describe yeah. an old practice. You yeah. know, we used to we what we used to call sharing, we now call collaborative consumption, and so on. <laughs> I mean, so now and again, we get these new buzzwords, but a lot of the kind of you know basic patterns of human behavior they're describing are, are generally 
quite ancient, you know, of, of ways of interacting together and kind of pooling our resources in an ancient practice. Yeah. But crowdfunding has brought that, I think, into the into the 21st century and really enmeshed it with social networks. Um, and so really focused it on that sharing piece. And so the key competitive advantage crowdfunding has versus, let's say, just having a donate button on your own site or other forms of fundraising that charities engage in is not simply that it converts people to donors more effectively, but more powerfully, I think, is that it converts donors to sharers um, because it, it sweeps them up into this very simple but very powerful game dynamic around you know, reaching a goal within a set period of time before the time runs out. And people want to be part of you know, successful um, uh, you know, kind of, they want to be part of uh, wins rather than losses, and they want to help push the campaign they're supporting along to that goal, so that it is actually realised. And either because they're going to get the, you know, they're excited about the reward they they might get, or they're excited about the social impact made possible. And so, it really cultivates sharing. It really cultivates participation in a more kind of engaged way than your classic kind of donation flows. So, what influenced you to get involved in using digital to- tools for? Um, social good purposes? Um, I'd have to go back a bit, I guess, to answer that. My, you know, without getting, I guess, too sidetracked into a, a life story, my real passion is how we build infrastructure to help people, more people get involved in making a difference. And I'm really interested in, I, I think, the quality of our democracy, not as measured by sim- simple participation at the ballot box, but rather measured by how we participate in between elections, the things we do every day. Um, our ability to engage in public conversations about the things that matter to us, our ability to affect change um, in our local community, to work with our neighbours and so on, um, to express our point of views, share our stories. So I've long been fascinated by that and I think that was really sparked by some early experiences I had um, as a teenager which you kind of file under classic youth leadership type experiences. Um, and my, you know, my analysis of those experiences was that they were, you know, classic youth, leader, youth leadership experiences, which is that they were tokenistic, haphazard, and biased towards wealth. The same kind of young people took advantage of those experiences every time. And I was one, you know, I was that kind of young person. I came from a middle-class family that talked about politics around the dinner table, so I was opinionated, I was able to hold my own in debate, um, and I was able to avail myself of those particular sort of opportunities. But I had a real kind of realisation about how inadequate that was to really be, you know, and, and that building a better democracy meant really seeking out ways of, you know, and, and seeking out opportunities to engage people in new ways. And so initially that took the form of, you know, really low technology events and and, and magazines, zines that, you know, initially uh, I found an organisation at high school and we, we distributed our zine around like 50 high schools in Sydney and held mock parliaments at the Parliament House and things like that. Um, and then at university, I was involved in student organising and a similar sort of thing, uh, creating debates on campus, bringing politicians and other and activists and speakers together to represent different points of view so students could, you know, kind of learn from and engage with those different points of view, make their own mind up, get involved. And and I had a, you know, I, I kind of hit a wall with organising events, frankly. I'd, I'd been doing that for five years pretty relentlessly and, and events are a treadmill. I mean, anyone who's listening and who has kind of been in an event organising job knows how grueling they are. They're the hardest of hard deadlines. You know, on a certain day, people are just going to show up or not, um, and you have to be ready or not. And then you wake up the day after that, and the event has kind of just vanished. 
and there's nothing to do but to organize the next event. And I got sick of organizing events and I, I, I began to think, is there a better way to kind of facilitate this engagement, this conversation, this participation, this storytelling that I am really passionate about facilitating other than events? And this was, I guess, in 99, 2000. And I realized, of course, yeah, there is a better way. Because for the first time, we had access to a medium that was both mass in scale but low in cost and that was the internet and i began to think i began to explore and think a lot about how can we use the internet to really kind of host and, and build platforms for this sort of conversation and to share information people need to make informed decisions in their political participation and i guess that's what set me off not, not being technical myself i mean my my background you know what i was studying at university was political science and philosophy so i'm really interested in people and how they how they work together how they engage in issues how they affect the world around them um, and I simply saw that technology was by far the best tool to do that at any sort of scale, particularly when you had very little money. Um, and so that led to, to me founding a new nonprofit called Vibewire to kind of pursue some of those lines of inquiry. Vibewire is still around now, actually, just about to, I'm speaking at their 15th birthday um, in a few weeks, which makes me feel pretty old. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so that, you know, kind of continuing on from there, I, I spent a couple of years, when after I left Firebar, I spent a couple of years at Ashoka as the first social media director there in 2008 to 2010. And so that was a really interesting time, I think, to be focusing and specializing around social media. And, and the mandate that I was given when I got to Ashoka was figure out how social technologies can help contribute toward, to building an everyone a change maker world. So really a question that appealed to me, because that in many ways, while I wouldn't have phrased it exactly like that, Previously, that was essentially the question I've been asking myself all along: How do we get everyone involved? How do we create it? How do we create a democracy that is actually a participatory democracy where everyone at least has the opportunity to participate? Um, they may then choose not to, um, which is why, by the way, at, a, at Start Some Good, we say our, our our kind of our big picture goal is to create an anyone a change maker world, which is a a very subtle difference from Ashoka's uh, mission, but. Uh, Alex and I, who's the co-founder of Start Some Good, who I met at Ashoka, we felt like, oh, you know, and everyone at Changemaker World is great, but people kind of have to have the option to, you know, go live way deep in the woods and not be a change maker, perhaps, if that's what they're called upon to yeah. do as well. So, and anyone, but anyone should have the opportunity to create change if they want. And so, Start Some Good really came out of those explorations and, and observing that one of the real barriers to an everyone change maker world um, and a real barrier in general to creating the kind of future that we need was the struggles the social sector had in funding innovation that the social sector is traditionally not very good at funding what's new and what's unproven um, the major funders in the sector governments big foundations high net worth individuals are not not everyone of course but overall are relatively risk averse funders and they and they want to fund things that they know will work that have proven results which is, of course, a very admirable aim, but it only works if you have some sort of a source of high-risk capital able to fund, essentially, experiments to prove things work. Otherwise, you end up with an ecosystem that clearly has a deficit of innovation. Um, and that's, that was our observation of the social sector and why we really were passionate and why we wanted to build a, a crowdfunding platform that would enable innovative projects to essentially go round those traditional funding gatekeepers and appeal direct to a community who may be much more interested and much more exciting around funding new approaches. 
We'll be back to talk to Tom in part two. Our digital tip this week comes from Jason Wojciechowski from CoreLab, who shared a fantastic resource developed by Hannah Thomas and the team at Some of Us, which, if you don't know, is a platform for consumers, workers and shareholders to highlight and counterbalance the growing power of large corporations. What I really admire about Hannah and the Some of Us team for supporting her is that she could have reflected on all of this privately, made some changes to her own communication practice and then left it there. However, Hannah chose a really brave step to publicly say that she could do better and use the insight that she gained from the experience to develop a resource that would benefit all of us in the social change movement. Regardless of how right on you think you are, I really recommend everyone who creates, produces or signs off content to read the style guide and reflect on how aware you are of the impact of your communications beyond meeting your immediate campaigning, fundraising and outreach goals and to ensure that in the future they're as inclusive as possible. You can download the guide and read Hannah's post on her Medium page, which is medium.com at Hannah, which is H-A-N-N-A dot Thomas. And I've also included a link in the show notes. Now back to our chat with Tom Dawkins. So Start Some Good wasn't the first um, crowdfunding platform around. Why do you think Mm -hmm. um, there was a need for a specific crowdfunding platform that really focused on um, good causes? We were one of the early ones that was focused on good causes, but no, we certainly weren't. We, we certainly didn't invent the model and we never claimed that. In fact, we were really inspired by what we saw kick, what we saw happening with Kickstarter in kind of 2009 when I first kind of getting the, the hints of the idea and then 2010 when Alex and I started talking about it really seriously and started working on it and in 2011 we launched. So we've been around a little while now. Um, and, you know, we thought Kickstarter was solving a similar sort of problem which was that you know that the creative industries was dominated by gatekeepers that that decided what new work got created whether that was the kind of national endowment of the arts or government funding bodies or record label executives or gallery owners there were all these gatekeepers throughout the sector in in, in between creatives and audiences or consumers and so you know kickstarter built a new pathway that connected those people directly and that was we thought very much the dynamic that social entrepreneurs and and nonprofits and community groups needed as well but we think that raising money for a cause is fundamentally a different type of story from raising money for a invention or a gadget or a you know a a smartwatch, you know, or, or a movie or any sort of a product. You know, products are great and cool and they're a particular type of story that you tell to, to drive pre-sales on that product. But blending philanthropy in with that and telling a social change story we think is just fundamentally a different, a different expertise. It's like, you know, if you're, if you're employing, you know, you're hiring marketing for a charity, you know, you may look for that particular expertise. The fact that someone's marketed for, I don't know, a fast-moving consumer good or a soda brand may not indeed be the right set of experiences to actually help you then sell a philanthropic act. And so we just thought that, that we could bring that specific expertise to this tool. We didn't invent the tool, but we thought that the tool combined with an actual knowledge of what drives donor behavior, um, with Alex and I both coming from the not-for-profit sector and having worked in online community building and fundraising, we thought that those two things together, the right tool with the right advice around storytelling and, and you know, donor development and so on could be a really powerful combination and was a unique combination at the time. Somewhat less unique now, obviously, a bunch of platforms have launched in the intervening years, but we still think we, we, we you know, bring particular expertise 
in our sector, and we see that in our in our success rate. You know, we have one of the highest success rates in crowdfunding. With fifty three percent of projects on our site reach their goals. It's one of the very few sites where there's more success than failure. Um, Kickstarter's success rate is more typical, which is thirty one percent, and an Indiegogo style success rate, which is thirteen percent, is not uncommon. Do you find that people are going to using donating through your platform because they they want to donate to a cause and they're not really sure what they want to do and they do they do a search or they coming straight from the promotion that um, an organization that has set up a project on start some good have done the latter is much more common across all crowdfunding platforms and this is really you know speaks to I think one of the core misunderstandings of what's going on with crowdfunding is that people conceptualize them as a two-sided marketplace so you know, uh, as as let's say like Airbnb, that if you're listing your spare bedroom on Airbnb, your job is the listing. You know, write up some good copy, take some nice photos and good light, set a reasonable price, talk up how cool your neighbourhood is, and put it you know and, and set put it live. And then you don't give any thought at all to where your actual where where are the visitors coming from? You know, where where's the traffic coming from that's going to look at your page? That's on Airbnb. Um, and people think about crowdfunding platforms as, as having a similar dynamic, but they actually don't. And, and that's where a lot of that failure comes from, is just this fundamental misunderstanding whereby people think of crowdfunding as being about crowds. That there's these people who are kind of much like your Airbnb visitor, they're a bit anonymous to you, they're abstract, they're out there somewhere, but you don't need to think too much about who they are exactly. They're just going to find your project somehow and shower you with money because they're that way inclined. And so they think of sites like ours and Kickstarter and so on as communities of people who love funding projects. But it's simply not a very common behavior. It's like, you know, there is some of that, absolutely, but there's not enough of that to rely on. Because it's not that common a human behavior to wake up in the morning with a burning desire to give money away and to go looking for something to give money to. It's really the job of a fundraiser is to grab someone's attention. Cool. And so I think that brings us very nicely on to... Um, if I had to ask you and and say what were the three top tips that in um, you find the three top tips sorry that you find yourself saying to potential crowdfunders over and over again what what are they? It probably goes something like it's not about crowds it's not about crowds it's not about crowds. <laughs> Um, Which you know, we just covered I, earlier in, yeah, the, exactly. in the previous session. Hammering that home is, is the number one thing. But I guess to give some more specific kind of <laughs> practical applications of that understanding, one of the things I really tell everyone and, and make a big fuss about is getting your day one donors ready. And day one donors are the people ready to go right at the moment you hit launch because you really don't want your campaign sitting there for more than a split second with zero donors. You know, same reason you never see a busker's hat empty or a tip jar empty. You need to signal to people um, and, and provide, a, you know, provide a, a sense of credibility that is created by, by having supporters already on board who are essentially vouching for you and acting as referees. And you shouldn't leave those to chance. It shouldn't just be launching a campaign and go, oh, I wonder who my first supporter is going to be. No, you should have a group. You need to cultivate a group of people who are really ready to go. And if there aren't a group of people who are excited to see your campaign launch, and anticipating that moment, then you probably need to stop and not launch your campaign until you do have that core group of supporters who are ready to go and already engaged. Um, because if you don't create that momentum on day one, it becomes harder with every passing day. Yeah, and I know um, at Start Some Good, uh, you guys have 
have done a lot of work in sort of creating materials and resources for people to really look at how to develop that if you've got mm. great sort of guides and resources to and maybe that's one of the reasons why your site is a little bit more successful than others is because the resources that you have for people to help them put the right product the project on is oh there. yeah absolutely it's not yeah it's not magic there's nothing kind of our, our site is not like better let's say than kickstarter or other the other main sites they're all pretty similar in terms of their functionality we do just try a little bit harder so from a business model point of view you know that's, that's why we're a social enterprise as well it's not just that we only work with with, with I think social change projects, but actually that we take that responsibility really seriously and we're prepared to put quite a lot of effort in up front to help people succeed. And our business model is premised on success. We only get, you know, we only get a cut. We only get paid if people actually hit their goals. So there's no, you know, I think some crowdfunding sites, their business model is essentially just kind of getting people out the door and kind of churning them, even at fairly low success rates. Um, still getting a little slice of the pie every time and it all adding up. You know, if you can put if you can put no effort in, then you can then that can be quite profitable. Um, but but yeah, by, but our model is really oriented on making sure people do know what to do to succeed because we need we need you to succeed or else we don't get paid either. Yeah, you must have a favorite project or a project that you're most proud of that has has been funded through Start Some Good. What what is that? Oh, it's a little bit like asking someone to choose their favorite child. Um, <laughs> Don't know if I have favourites. There are a couple of you know stories that I think about and and I'm very proud of. I guess we, you know, because they exemplify something interesting about crowdfunding. I think there's one of our very early projects was a, a project called Belba's Speech, which was a speech therapy app uh, for people with a stutter. Um, and I'd never really thought about stuttering, but it can have a huge impact on people's lives you know, if they don't overcome it. And and to overcome it can often be years of speech therapy, which of course is highly inaccessible and unaffordable for a lot of people and so the idea here was that you could provide it you know in a three dollar app um, and the guy who founded that was a great young entrepreneur named Jack McDermott but he didn't himself have the technical skills he needed so he just needed a few thousand dollars he wasn't asking for a lot of money like three thousand dollars from memory US just to kind of pay a contractor to help him out with the bits he couldn't do himself and so he raised that money from 19 people I think it was so we're not talking you know we're talking you know, like the people who saw this, the, the Sex Pistols play in Liverpool saying, we're not talking huge numbers of people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but those 19 people who believed in Jack and his vision allowed him to get that first version of the app finished and released. As a result of that, quite a lot of people used that and it got quite a bit of buzz. And that then result allowed him to actually raise money from a venture capitalist, um, a mainstream venture capitalist, not even an impact investor, which enabled him to produce a much more, you know, a big step up for version two, which is what you currently see on the market now. If you search Bob, it's Speech for Good actually is the app. Um, and it's, you know, now a really polished, beautiful app and it's a, it's a you know, honest to goodness social enterprise making a real difference at, at scale using technology. And it was made possible with $3,000 contributed by 19 people because there's no way Jack could have got that VC money just with his idea at first. He had to create a, a prototype. And so I think that's that's often been the missing step in kind of the social innovation ladder. There are all sorts of institutional sources of funding who are quite keen to invest in innovative approaches. They just need to see it first. Mm. And so how do you fund that prototype? And in this case, you know, 19 people, probably, you know, to be honest, all of whom Jack probably knew who were prepared to back him and, and, and take a punt on him and, and it's come a long way since then. And so I kind of love that because it shows sometimes you don't need a lot 
you don't need a lot of people, you don't need a lot of money, but you do need something to get the ball rolling yeah. and to get to get that demo done. Um, another one I love on a kind of very different end of the scale is something called the Food Justice Truck in um, Melbourne, Australia, which is a, a mobile market providing you know locally grown organic fruit and vegetables and giving asylum seekers an eighty percent discount on those. And that's to address a very fundamental problem in Australia, which is the lack of support for asylum seekers who are forced to who get a very limited amount of government. Um, uh, you know, getting get a government allowance essentially less than what you get if you're going to university full time, which is barely a living, you know, barely livable as it is. They're not allowed to work, so they can't supplement that. And in many cases, they have kids, and so it creates an impossible situation where they literally can't afford, you know, good food for their families, and their health suffers, and that makes everything else they're going through harder as well. And so this is, I, I love this both. It, it, it was founded by a charity, and the charity was given. Uh, called the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, which is well known in Melbourne, and it came out of them really asking themselves, how do we better support asylum seekers who can't come to our centre? They're a big, vibrant community centre. They provide a lot of services out of that centre, but they're like, how do we how do we reach out beyond that? And they came up with this idea of the mobile market, which was a social enterprise model, can be sustainable in the long run because you know your average citizen will pay the usual market price for those pro for that produce, and then it would provide a long range uh, discount. To the asylum seekers, and they were the reason they chose crowdfunding, and this may resonate with some people, was they went to their board, the leadership there went to their board and pitched the idea, and the board was like, "We love the idea, but you can't go to any of our existing funders. You can't approach anyone who is currently funding the centre, because we, you know, we're, we're afraid of cannibalising mm. from our core business and our core supporters." And so the asylum seeker resource centre decided to use crowdfunding as a way of bringing in that new group of donors to fund this new idea, and they raised one hundred fifty-three thousand dollars. To launch that and that 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 mobile market hit the roads or the that truck which is beautiful hit the road started this year and so and they yeah, I think that, they actually from memory exceeded their original fundraising goal didn't they yeah a hundred thousand was their minimum yeah, they needed so they, to kind they, of yeah get so the they just the, exceeded it yeah so 153 was an, a nice bit above that they gave a bit more of a yeah. buffer more from Tom in part three now digital gold this week's Digital Gold nomination comes from Wayne Murray, who's Head of Fundraising and Brand at Refugee Action. Wayne nominated Amnesty International's recent video, Look Beyond Borders. The video, which is based on Arthur Aaron's theory that four minutes of uninterrupted eye contact increases intimacy, shows refugees from Syria and Somalia sat across from people from Poland, UK, Germany, Italy and Belgium, looking at each other intensely. The video really shows how powerful and emotional connections can be formed in just four minutes, highlighting that regardless from where we come from, we're all human beings. You can see the video on Amnesty's YouTube channel or take a look at our show notes for the link. If you see a piece of communication, campaign or content that you think deserves a digital gold, let me know. Get in touch via our website, gooddigital.co or on Twitter, at digitalgoodinfo. Now back to part three of our chat with Tom Dawkins from Start Some Good. What would you say is like the, the biggest insight that you've learned um, since you've set it up, Start Some Good? Um, gosh, it's hard to pick just one. Um, look, I, I'll tell you one thing that I, I definitely learned along the way, and that is the power of design. If you go to startsomegood.com at the moment, it's the third version of our site um, in terms of look and feel, the second version in terms of under the hood. Um, brand new site just launched over Christmas actually hope you like it um, but we had done a, a reskin prior to that even with the old 
old platform. And even that reskin made the most extraordinary difference at the time. And this new version has made an extraordinary difference again. Um, I think, I mean, this new version in particular has some real advances in functionality and other things. But but I really think it's design that makes the huge difference. Then I, I don't I didn't fully appreciate that with the first version of our site. I think I, I'm pretty utilitarian myself. I just want things to work. You know, and I just want them to be easy to use, and they don't have to be too, I guess, pretty. Um, but for a lot of people, that is so important, and and I get it because for a lot of people, launching something new through crowdfunding, you know, so it's also the introduction of their brand um, to the world, and they and they want it to be, I guess, wrapped in and and sit within a look and feel that they feel resonates. And and frankly, the the first version of our site, if you're really curious, you can use the Wayback Machine to go have a look. Was was kind of dark and ugly in retrospect, um, but uh, but none of us were. We didn't really have a designer. You know, we had a we had some we had some coders and we had some people who cared about the the social participation and action. But we didn't have that design leader on the on on that original version, and so this new version we worked really closely with some UX experts, and they really helped us, I think, craft it a lot more. So that was a huge learning for me because I, I I had undervalued that part of the equation, and it used to drive me crazy at first. Where I'm like, but our site works. Look, you know, compare our compare our metrics. Yeah. It's, it works as well as every anyone else's, better than anyone else's. But people, you know, they have they have a reaction to what they're looking at naturally, and. And I think that's a really good point to take away for other types of interactions that you have with um, supporters in the general public, you know, via digital platforms or your websites. And particularly, I think the area that needs a lot of design focus is that can take that lesson that you've just explained is, you know, in terms of just normal fundraising forms and processes and normal you know digital digital petitions or e-campaigning processes and, and forms we i think yeah. we get stuck in like okay this is how the form works rather than thinking about how do people want to actually express their um yeah. support for us in a way that's easy for them to use because it's often yep. designed by programmers. It's like, well, this is the most functional way to do it and the most efficient way for us. Not yeah. thinking how does you know how easy is is it for people to use and exactly. Um, I think the most recent exa good example of this actually is uh, TypePad. No, Typeform. Is that what I mean? It's this really beautiful new survey tool. Um, and you'd think surveys, they all look the same. They've got bloody you know boxes, and you fill them out and move on to the next box and fill that out. Um, but it's actually the completion rates are much, much higher because it is just a more beautiful, graceful experience than any using any other survey tool I've ever seen. And so we've seen that, you know, increased completion rates with ours and I've read a lot of data of other people as well who've had quite considerable. And, and when people send me a type form, I'm like, oh, it's a pleasure to fill out. Yeah. It's so well designed. I'm happy to be here. Um, and so I think that, that reminded me yet again of just how important that is even for something as seemingly utilitarian as a form. Crowdfunding is still for, I think, for many, um, I say for char for charities in particular, not for social enterprises. I think it's a it's a lot more part of their business plan is, and they're more comfortable using crowdfunding tools. But I think yeah. for established charities, there's still a a little bit of wariness around using it, um, using it as a way to raise money. Um, what do you think are the things that are like stopping or scaring sort of decision makers at, at 
charities from using crowdfund <clears throat> sorry using crowdfunding tools more a couple of things i think there's some concern over cannibalization that are we just shifting supporters from one place to another you know from our email list to a to a crowdfunding platform um, versus are we kind of capturing new supporters um, and that's why and that causes people often to do this very um, to kind of shoot themselves in the foot while they try and leapfrog their existing supporters so they try and launch crowdfunding campaigns I've seen people do this literally without telling their email list because they're like well our email list is already our email list and our crowdfunding campaign is about bringing is about getting new people on our email list but because crowdfunding is so kind of is is so powered by sharing you need to get the sharing rolling with some people who are as I was saying before your early supporters who can essentially vouch for you and be like these guys are great they're worth the money and I, I'm happy to chip in myself and that's your existing supporters so crowdfunding is a great way of leveraging your existing supporters into recruiting new supporters through their social networks but to leap from to leapfrog them completely is to leave yourself in a really tough position, creating that early traction entirely from people who've never heard of you before or who have only a very loose um, relationship with you. So that's one thing. I think there's another uh, kind of thing that can come up with a, a, a fear of public failure, that crowdfunding is very public. So, you know, and you set very specific goals. So failure is, you know, versus just a donate button on your site, no one knows how much you're bringing in through that. But when you launch a crowdfunding campaign, you're saying, we believe we can raise thirty thousand pounds, and then if you fall well short of that, you may feel that that undermines some of your credibility or brand. Um, and so I think that makes people hesitate as well. You know, when you write a grant application, you may fail, but no one needs to know. It's a private process, and I would just encourage people to be courageous about that. I think you know a lot of the best of what. You know, a lot of the best of crowdfunding is its very publicness, is the fact that it's shareable, that it, that it moves through social networks, is the fact that you get more back from it than just money. You'll almost certainly get offers of volunteers, uh, in-kind and pro bono support. Other things come along because people can see it. So it's, it's not as zero-sum as a grant application where it's kind of yes, no, and if it's no, you've got nothing. Crowdfunding, you'll tend to actually get all this kind of interesting other offers back as well. Um, if you succeed at crowdfunding, you don't just have money. You have a really you have a really cultivated community with a sense of ownership over your project who want to see that project su succeed. That's a huge asset to an organization or a project. Um, whereas if someone once again gives you a grant, well, great, you've got money, but you might need to spend that money actually cultivating that that level of participation you need. And crowdfunding essentially does that all all at once. So there are real you know advantages to the public. You know that is why crowdfunding is better than some other forms of fundraising, I think, is, is very much because of its publicness. But of course, that makes it more scary, both for organizations and very much for individuals who may have a may have a great idea for a social change project, but without a lot of experience in fundraising, may, may be concerned about, you know, whether they're going to succeed or fail and, and the possible sense of humiliation that could come from public failure. But I think that's, you know, overblown. I, I'm proud to admit that I've failed in things that I've done, <laughs> and yeah. I think and you, you know, learn from that, don't you? Yeah, and you learn from that. So, um, so I think they're they're really great points, and um, one of the really good things, and and which I've mentioned before, and we'll make sure that these are in the show notes that we have, is that I think you start some good have really amazing guides to help you think through the the process that leads up to actually before you even 
you know open your account on a um a crowdfunding platform like all the questions that you need to ask yourself so we'll make sure there's links in the show notes for everybody to those resources because i think they're really <clears throat> pardon me they're really invaluable and i think they'll help teams realize when they need to be using crowdfunding or when they should be using mm. another source of um you know whether it should be a, a normal fundraising appeal or whether it should be something else so we'll make yeah, sure great. that that and also all the other things um that tom's been mentioning are in our show notes so all the things all the links Could I add one one final thought as well yeah. which is just a, a mistake in particular i see charities make here and and i think coming back to your point earlier social enterprises don't do this as much but that's um choosing keep what you raise versus an all or nothing mechanism um now, obviously, we've chosen to put an all-or-nothing mechanism, which we call the tipping point on our side. It's a bit of a hybrid, actually. You choose two goals, and it's your lower goal is your all-or-nothing, but you can still have an aspirational goal, which you don't live or die based on whether you reach. But I really believe that that's very important, and charities in particular can shy away from it, and I think that is because they kind of come at this stuff sometimes from a scarcity mindset. They're not so much asking, how do I maximize my success, but how do I minimize my failure? You know, And they're kind of almost going into it, asking themselves that. And because of that mindset of, you know, we never have enough money anyway, but every dollar counts and so we've got to really cling to every dollar, mm. the idea that people would pledge to you and then you would not get that pledge, that you would, you know, fail to reach your goal and sacrifice pledges already made is just anathema to most charity fundraisers. And I totally get that. You know, that, that is all absolutely true. But the thing you have to think about is, you know, to succeed at crowdfunding, you can't just think about yourself essentially and what's scary for you and what's risky for you. You've really got to think about your supporters and what's going to make your project feel safe for them, what's going to make it feel credible for them, how you're going to get them off the fence. And what Keep What You Raise does is it doesn't make the risk go away, it exports the risk to all your potential supporters. And so they get trapped thinking about what happens if you fall short. Instead of you taking responsibility for, I'm gonna reach this, this is how much money we need and we're gonna actually reach this goal and therefore you can be completely secure in what are the outcomes here, there's no ambiguity. We either have enough money and the project goes ahead or we don't, in which case you keep your funds. But what's, what's pretty unacceptable to most potential donors is this fuzzy space in, in the middle which most, most projects on a Keep What You Raise platform like Indiegogo end up in, you know, the 90% that don't reach their goal, which is that you've said you need $10,000 or £10,000 to do this awesome, inspiring project. But I'm looking at your project right now and you're on $400 or £400. And so what's the benefit of getting you from 400 to 420? The project still can't happen. Now, in, a, in, a keep, in an all or nothing scenario, no risk to me. I'll get yeah. you from 400 to 420, knowing that one of only two outcomes is possible. Project goes ahead, that's my preferred outcome. I'm gonna help try and get you, you know, I'm not just gonna chip in, I'm gonna share, I'm gonna try and help you get to your goal. But if, that's, if it turns out that not enough other people actually want to support it, and it can't go ahead, then the only other outcome that's really acceptable to me is to get those funds is to get my money back or what really happens is it's never actually processed but you know in psychologically it feels like getting it back so that I can give it to another project because exactly it comes back to what we're talking about for specificity of outcomes you know I can't just give money to random organization X or at least I can't give much on my salary but I love supporting specific projects and knowing what my money is doing in the world and if you use keep what you raise you can't really make those guarantees 
And in 90% of instances, you end up with my money, but you can't go ahead with the project because you're way short of the money you needed for that project. And so my money just kind of disappears and I don't know what's happened to it. And I just hate that. And so what happens is that most people hang back. You know, most people are just like, look, I love this project, but I just want to make sure it has enough support and then I'll chip in. But of course, with everyone hanging back, waiting to see everyone else contribute first, that momentum is never created. There's too much friction. There's too much, you know, risk for me to overcome to give a contribution. And so they don't get the traction they need. And instead of $10,000, they end up with $1,000. And then they usually say to themselves, thank goodness we chose keep what you raised or else we wouldn't have got to keep this $1,000 or £1,000. And I'm like, no, we could have got you to $10,000. Yeah. Um, you know, if only we'd actually approached it in a way that is conducive to inspiring new support that, that, that kind of leverages the game dynamics that crowdfunding can create because the goals matter and the deadline is meaningful. And it's that sense of need. You know, we all know in, crowd, in, in fundraising, one of the people respond to need. You can't raise money if, if you don't need money. You have to tell people, we need your money. Your money is important. And we can make something really important happen in the world with that. And so an all or nothing deadline or a tipping point is a way of really enforcing that sense of need. This money matters. This goal matters. Let's, we have to get there together. Um, and that's why it's so much more successful. And actually, while there is that, you know, a proportion of projects that do end up with nothing, it's a, if you do need $10,000, it's a much more effective goal for actually getting you to $10,000. So in terms of wider um, use of digital, what organisations of campaigns have really impressed you in terms of how they've used digital to engage and inspire the public to support them? Gosh, there's a lot. I mean, in terms of, you know, beyond crowdfunding, just how people build community, there's, I, I guess I'm always, I'm drawn to small organizations that are punching above their weight, thanks to the kind of equalizing power of technology. Um, and so examples of that would be, you know, in Australia, there's a great campaign called All Together Now, which has been doing some really important anti-racism work over the last eight years. I know the woman who founded that and they really started off as just, you know, just her and some, some collaborators and very quickly they were one of the most important voices in that space because they knew how to use technology um, and the, the traditional organisations working in that space didn't and so it's just a great example of how very quickly if you throw yourself out there you can actually become a really key voice. Um, if you do know how to use these tools, uh, in the States, Charity Water are obviously brilliant, the way they, they crowdfund very directly for water projects that they support, the way they've leveraged celebrity attention, I think more successfully than probably any charity in the world. Um, how else is doing that? I mean, I think there's some social enterprises that are doing some cool stuff at, with this as well, using technology to connect people with the direct impact of their conscious consumption. Um, thank you group in Australia who do bottled water, which I don't love, but they also do some really nice uh, kind of muesli and soap products and things like that. They do a really good job of connecting people um, using QR codes and so on that you can actually find out where, you know, the, the, the profit that has been redistributed from the specific product you bought, which, which water project, they do work around water as well, which uh, water project in what part of the world is that actually supporting. I can give you that really, you know, that greater sense of, of direct connection. So yeah, there's a lot of people doing um, pretty cool work in, you know, all these different spaces. There's always an opportunity with any new medium, I think, for kind of new groups to to step forward. And much as all together now, figuring out digital tech ahead of those those big groups, there's always a moment where kind of size and scale doesn't matter. It's who can kind of figure it out first and get out there and really be native in, in that new medium and, and show how to use it. And, and that's usually not the really big organizations. Oh, another people speaking of big organizations, I think Greenpeace do really awesome work. 
um, particularly around how they share what they're learning. I think lots of organizations are doing great work, but you don't always know about it. They're learning a lot internally, but Greenpeace is really wonderful in the way that they share a lot of what they're working through their mobilization lab. So I really admire that too. Great. Um, and we'll have links to all, all the organizations you mentioned again in the, in the show notes. So besides crowdfunding, what do you think this year's killer, killer app, in inverted commas, will be? And also, what do you think is the, what do you think is being overhyped at the moment? Uh, to start with the second one first, I think VR has been overhyped. Um, now, I may be proven wrong about this, but I think if you look at the last ten years of technology, we've been increasingly moving. We're, we're drawn towards experiences we can share rather than those that we experience individually. And so far, VR is a very individual experience. You know, you you put the headset on and you're inside that world. Now, augmented reality maybe has some more interesting uses, but I think VR is, yeah, really overhyped. Um, I think the killer app this year is probably live video. Um, as that becomes ever more accessible, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how uh, nonprofits and activist organizations use it to report live. I mean, we're already seeing some great examples of this report live from the scenes of their um, actions. It's going to be interesting. We haven't seen a lot of it kind of connected with crowdfunding yet, but I bet we do in, as we move into the second half of the year um, with people using Periscope and Facebook Live. Um, and once again, because that's creating a sense of shared experience where you're seeing something that's happening right now. And even in a way you can see Snapchat as maybe part of that trend as well, which is not quite real time, but very recent time and expiring. So it's about the now, not about the preservation of a piece of perfect content for the future. And so I think we'll increasingly see kind of trends in that direction as people are looking to really connect with what's happening right now around them and have that more personal experience. Tom, thank you so much for being on Good Digital and all the best with Start Some Good. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. And thank you for listening to the second episode of Good Digital. A huge thank you to Tom Dawkins from Start Some Good for his time, Wayne Murray and Jason Wojciechowski for their Digital Gold and Tips nominations, and to everyone who sent supportive messages and feedback. Our show notes for this episode are available on our website, gooddigital.co, with links to the sites and resources mentioned in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter that reminds you of when the next episode's out and also includes show notes. Like any good podcast on digital, we're on social, so follow us on Twitter at gooddigitalinfo or Facebook on facebook.com gooddigital. Good Digital is produced and presented by Karina Brisby. We feature the music Lies by CDK featuring Quarkstar that you can download from ccmixter.org. Thanks and bye.